Before I start, I want to start with a, I'd like to begin with a little story. So back in the year 2000, when, um, when you were all just little children, but I was an adult, um, I, I was living in Sydney, Australia. So at the time, and in Sydney, uh, the Olympics were held in the year 2000 there. So I was in the Olympic city uh, living there. And one of the things they decided to do was they decided to take no chances because Atlanta was a bit of a dodgy Olympics before then. They were taking no chances whatsoever. So they decided they'd, they'd have a rehearsal for the marathon. So about, about a, a month before the actual real Olympic marathon, they organized a marathon. And they did it exactly like the Olympic marathon. And they invited local runners to come and run. So I went to run the Olympic marathon in 2000. And I was able to take part in the event. It was an exact copy. Had all the crowds out cheering, the blue line. They towed all the cars off the route. You ran all the way through all the iconic Harbour Bridge, Opera House, all those things to the brand new Olympic Stadium, which they'd opened and they'd let the people into the stadium. And we... We ran in through the tunnel. It was all dark. And you came out and the crowd were roaring. And the guy who had you on the big jumbotron, jumbotron and was calling your name. And you ran around the Olympic track. And I thought to myself when I did that, my goodness, what must it be like to be a professional runner? My every little piece of nerve endings was just firing off. And I thought, this is just a tiny little insight into being a pro runner and now 20 years later somebody being Matt Fitzgerald has written a book to give you insight in what it's really like to go and be a pro runner so um, we're going to get answers to some of those questions I think what it's really what it's really going to be like Hello, my fellow running brothers and sisters. This is Running Book Reviews with Alan and Liz, a place where you can get a detailed review of a running book before deciding whether you want to buy it for yourself. Maybe you would like to get some running tips. Maybe you're just looking for a bit of extra motivation or inspiration to power your training along. Well, today's book will definitely give you some of that. It's Running the Dream by Matt Fitzgerald, and today Matt has graciously, graciously agreed to join us share his experiences that we see in the book. So first things first, um, if you don't know Matt Fitzgerald, which that is probably not very many people if you're reading any books about running at all. Uh, so yeah, Matt is a lifelong endurance athlete. He's been running since the age of 11 when he would run with, the, um, with his dad for the last kilometer of the Boston Marathon. He later branched out to triathlon. He completed one Ironman, which... Um, hats off because I wanted to do a half Ironman after I graduated from university and it still has not happened. So <laughs> I can't even imagine the, the full Ironman. He's now a sub 240 marathoner, um, which is amazing and uh, which is a little bit what the book is about. So spoiler alert. And then uh, other than that, he's also in the sports world as a running and triathlon coach. He's a certified sports nutritionist. He wrote for many 
journals and uh, websites. So some of the more well-known ones are like Men's Health or Men's Fitness, Outside Magazine. Um, there's uh, there's a, a website, mattfitzgerald.org, which uh, also has a link to another website, which is Matt's training website, which is 8020 Endurance. And just to top it all off, Matt even has an app in the App Store um, about <laughs> where you can calculate your diet quality score, which that's a different book, but um, he talks about that in the endurance diet, racing weight, and he's authored and co-authored 27 books, which would be in itself probably one year worth of of you know running book reviews podcast episodes so <laughs> so in fact we could have a sub program that's just instead of running book reviews it's just matt fitzgerald's running book reviews we could to <laughs> totally have that um so welcome we're we're really happy to have you and uh welcome to our podcast i'm happy to be with you you know i need to update that bio i've actually done a second iron man so uh, oh wow really yeah, yeah, you need to. You definitely year. need to update that because, like, an <laughs> Ironman, I it's just it's I can't even wrap my head around that distance. I mean, I know what it's like to finish a marathon, and I just I know what it's like to ride. I rode did a one hundred k ride once, and I just cannot imagine doing another eighty k. Not to mention having to run a marathon after and having swum a four k, which takes me a long time to swim four k. So. I never would have thought to do it if others hadn't done it already. I mean, it is it is pretty extreme. <laughs> yeah, I bet that was a full-time job just training for that. But um, much. Yeah. So Matt, the book Running Running the Dream, um, basically for people who don't know, it's um, the idea is for you to go and train as a professional runner for a, um, a three-month program to um, – train up to run the Chicago Marathon. How did you come up with the idea of doing that? You know, I, I think millions, literally millions of runners have come up with the same idea. And, uh, you, you know, because running is a passion. So, I mean, there are, there are two axes. There's your talent on one axis and there's your passion for running on another. And obviously you have to have both passion and talent to become a real professional runner. But a lot of people who have a great passion for running, but not enough talent to get a shoe contract, they still would eat. I mean, they would turn pro if they could, if they had the talent, or at least they, you know, they, they can't help but fantasize about it, or at least in, in some way want fantasize about finding out just how good they could be if they could, really fully invest in running. Maybe just like, you know, take a sabbatical from work, take a little time out from some of their family duties, whatever, whatever it takes, uh, yeah. get, you know, expert coaching, um, all the support you need to just see what you can do with whatever amount of talent you have. So like so many other runners, I, I, it's something that, uh, I, I wanted to do, uh, as Liz mentioned, I started running when I was 11. You know, I'm 49 now. I was 46 when I did this experiment. Um, and I, I figured it's now or never at that age. Like, you know, uh, I have to say that, that <laughs> this is like, I have act, I've thought of, I've thought of that. I I've actually inquired at work, like how, you know, what kind of reasons 
can, can uh, for what kind of reasons can you have a sabbatical? Um, apparently running is not one of those reasons. So uh, <laughs> that I have to, you know, scratch that a off. Tra a training year oh. with Northern Arizona elite is not written into your sabbatical contract it's not no it's, it's gotta be like you know family emergency you're taking care of your sick elderly parents that kind of thing but yeah no it, it, they, they don't uh, sports pursuits are not included uh, okay so everyone has the ambition yeah we all we all we're all just sharing it just hearing you talk about it but nobody gets to do it you actually got to do it how, how did you persuade a um you know, how did you persuade a, such an elite organization of pro runners to take uh, Matt Fitzgerald? But not just that. How, like, why them? Why that group out yeah. of all the others? Yeah, it's funny because, you know, I took a little bit of my inspiration for this from uh, the book uh, Paper Lion uh, by George Plimpton, which came out way back in the 60s. And that, uh, George Plimpton was a writer sports fan, sports writer, who uh, he did this with a variety of sports, actually. He, I mean, and he wasn't an athlete, really, of any description. He was just a sports fan. But he talked uh, the Detroit Lions uh, American football team into letting him participate um, in the, one of their summer training camps. I think this is going back to 1962. Um, and he wrote just a, a wonderful story about the experience and then it actually became a film. He got to star as himself in the film. Like, if only awesome. for me, if I could. Uh, so, so this is this is the next. Um, right. The next thing is, well, you know, do you think anybody might pick up the film rights? Yeah, we'll see. Uh, you know, it's it's not easy to get a movie made, but yeah. Uh, okay. But, uh, Back to Nazalit. Right. So, I mean, I mentioned that to say, even back then, you know, we're you know we're talking fifty more than fifty years ago or close to, and it took George Plimpton two years to convince one professional football team to let him participate in a summer training camp. Wow. It, took me one, it took me one email to do the same in running. In, in wow. <laughs> because it's just a different sport. Uh, and, you know, that if you want proof of it, there you have it. Now, it's true that, you know, I'm well-connected in the sport, and – Ben Rosario, the coach of creator and coach of Northern Arizona Elite, the team I chose, uh, we'd never met, but he, he knew who I was. I knew who he was. So when I emailed him with this um, this scheme, um, it, it wasn't a complete cold call, you know. Um, and I chose, you know, because there are a variety of uh, professional running teams scattered throughout the U.S. I chose that particular team. Um, because they have a reputation for being very open uh, and wanting to um, connect with the broader running community. Uh, they just do a ton of sharing on social media and um, it, even in person at events. Um, and uh, they, they view that as part of the job, really. <clears throat> and so I thought if anyone's going to say yes, <laughs> Uh, ben, it's going to be Ben, and and he did. Yeah, we is can. that help? Is that openness of a reflection of of Ben and his 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 leadership of the of the team, or is it a is a feature of Hooker and their requirements of a team? It's Ben because um, Ben started the team even before he had a shoe sponsor, um, 
And so he just had a, you know, Ben, I mean, he's a, he's a running geek, you know, uh, he, 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 he loves running. He's, you know, immersed in the sport. He knows the sport. Um, but he's also, you know, he had a successful, um, he was briefly himself a, a professional runner. Um, but after that, um, he started, um, a running, running specialty shop in his native St. Louis, Missouri. Um, and that became quite successful. So Ben has some business acumen as well, in, in, including some marketing savvy. So he brought all that whole skill set to bear when he wanted to create a team. He didn't want to just coach runners well. He wanted to, uh, in a sense, change the definition of, of what it meant to be a professional runner. And, and he wanted to expand the role to encompass connecting with and inspiring the broader running community. So then when you, uh, you know, when you were invited and you were, you went down there for the first time. So were you kind of, since, you know, he's, he is the leader of the group, but did the group sort of accept you with open arms? Like, I guess, kind of like he would like, or, or was it, uh, was it a, a little different? Yeah, you know, he, he you know, it, it's part of just, you know, his Bren's whole makeup and his way of operating that he, he recruits very carefully. So, you know, he described himself to me at one point while I was there as a culture builder. Um, so that's the whole reason, you know, well, it's a big part of the reason he wants to coach a team versus a collection of athletes, you know, scattered uh, in all parts. Um, because he believes that, you know, that in, in the power and value of team dynamics. So, you know, he, he, he recruits a certain kind of runner. And, you know, I, I might have chosen another group where I wouldn't have been welcomed with open arms. But in this group, I was. No, of course, you know, there's things were a little stilted <laughs> early on. I mean, how could they not be? You know? Yeah, they were, people would be looking and thinking, who is this? upstart no i doubt it i think they probably were like oh my gosh it's matt fitzgerald why is he here running with us <laughs> <laughs> you know the funny thing is uh this might be a bit of an aside these folks were not matt fitzgerald fans and hmm. and actually you know very few elite runners are or, or elite endurance athletes because they're not reading books like they they get their guidance from you know, elite level coaches, scientists, yeah. like, you know, like specialists, they, they don't, they're not the folks reading my books. Like they're, 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 they're Mike, they're writing the books, not actually, right. but they're making yeah, those content, for yeah. the, content for the books. Yeah. So nobody was starstruck. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, but they were welcoming but there was, you know, I was, I was much older. I was much slower and I was just an outsider and I wasn't, I wasn't joining the group on a permanent basis. Uh, and that's part of the reason I wanted, you know, partly for training purposes and then also partly for, you know, social, I guess, purposes. I wanted to spend a lot of time with them because I knew it would take some time to just, I didn't want to force the process. One of my goals going in was to, I knew I would connect with, with some individual members of the team more quickly or readily than others, but I wanted to be there long enough to have 
to forge some kind of connection with each and every person on the team. And I knew that would take time. And it did. That's exactly it, when you read the book, you see that, you know, so, uh, yeah. someone, some, there, I mentioned them all right up front, but some people I don't, you don't really see much of them until much later because they were the ones who maybe were a little more skeptical about me or just, you know, took a little longer to warm up to me or whatever, whatever it was. So was that one of the reasons um, that you decided, you know, to, to rent a room in, uh, in Matt's house instead of, let's say, you know, getting your own place somewhere separate from everybody else? Well, like, yes. Yeah. But that, that offer came unexpectedly. Um, oh, okay. Because, you know, I mean, initially... All I was looking for was a yes from Ben Rosario. You know, <laughs> everything was contingent on that. And even that was a dream come true, just to have the opportunity to go out there and spend 13 weeks, you know, living and training with this team. But I mean, the way I envisioned it was, yeah, I'll, you know, my wife Nataki and I um, will, you know, rent, you know, one of these, you know, extended stay hotel rooms in, in Flagstaff and just, you know, see the team when the whole team congregates. Because it's not like they all, I don't know how people envision how professional running teams work, but they don't all live together in a dorm or something like <laughs> they all have houses and apartments. And, and so I thought I was just going to be on my own, except when I was part taking part in team activities. But Matt Yano, one of the members of the team at the time, he lives in a nice spacious house and he just had, it's something he liked doing. You know, he had a couple spare bedrooms and he liked to rent them out, usually to visiting uh, elite, you know, other pro athletes who wanted to come to Flagstaff for some high altitude training. Yeah, um, I, think, I think you commented in the book at one stage that you thought you were the slowest person ever to sleep in the spare bed. Uh, <laughs> Yes, I, I think that's accurate. I don't, I, I don't know for sure, but I, I know I know some of the other people who did sleep in on that bed before me, and they are much faster than I am. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, you 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 set yourself up with the team. Um, we get to meet the team. One of the things I should say about the writing of the book is that it feels immediate. I don't know whether you wrote it as you experienced it. Or you just collected all the notes and you're just just a phenomenal writer but i felt when i first read the book i, f I thought oh this was last year this is last year's chicago and then i, I sort of as i i looked at my notes etc i realized it was several years ago and i thought it feels so immediate the writing of it it's very uh you feel very present i think you feel like you're getting to know the characters you feel present on each day you write it a little bit like a diary uh, was that an intention or did you, did you write it like that? Did you write it a piece each day or make notes every day? Yeah. So, you know, one of the advantages of uh, having written 27 books <laughs> is that you, you get to, you get to, you learn a thing or two about the process. And one of the lessons I've learned over the years is that you need to have a plan it's actually like a training plan, really. You need to have a plan, but you you can't, you, you, don't, you shouldn't allow, you shouldn't chain yourself to the plan. 
So uh, you know, the biggest mistake I could have made early on in the process of turning this experience into a book would be just to decide on a format before I even landed in, in, in Flagstaff. So I had notions about you know, what I wanted to produce from it, but I, I wanted to be very open to the experience and let the experience tell me what form the book should take. But, you know, I did plan to take, uh, to keep a journal because, you know, the memory is, you know, mine especially is not reliable. Um, so I knew I couldn't just experience it, try to hold it all in my head and then write it down later. So I did keep a daily journal um, while I was there. And I also did a blog uh, because I wanted to create, I wanted people to be able to follow my journey, sharing my journey in real time. So um, the, the website Final Surge, which is it's the website that the team uses to track their training, but they also have kind of a blog function. So it's like a, you know, it's, it's like a blown out training log. So I would uh, share a little write up about my day's experience um, through Final Surge, share it on social media so that people could follow as I went. And that kept me accountable. The journal entries were always much more wordy. Um, I mean, the writing is atrocious, but that wasn't the point. The point was just to get the information down. And I remember it was like early validation while I was there. Um, I remember Ben Bruce, a member of the team at the time, telling me, because some of them, some of the members of the team would read what I wrote, at least occasionally. Like if they were and, going to be a hero in the, in yeah. the story. Right. Or... <laughs> Some of them were a little nervous probably, but, um, but, uh, but I remember Ben telling me at one point, not Ben Rosario, the coach, but Ben Bruce, a team member. Um, it's like you have a tape recorder in your head while we're running together. <laughs> and, but, but that's exactly what I was trying to do. I wanted to be very present, you know, because I was living a dream, but I also wanted to be sort of, remembering everything and then getting it down as soon as I was back at Matt Yano's house. And before I'd gotten very far, I realized, you know what, like this journal format kind of works. Like that wasn't the plan going in to make uh, the book have, you know, be a, you know, a journal or a diary, but I thought, you know, runners kind of think this way. And, and, you know, there's just like a sort of natural, like, narrative arc to you know counting down you know the chapter titles mm -hmm. are a countdown to the chicago marathon so i thought you know what this format could work uh, well well it absolutely does uh, from from our perspective we were just jumping uh, jumping out of our chairs basically talking about it as we were reading it because we uh, yeah it was it i mean and it, it because it was like kind of the countdown to the race it was also uh, sort of like you, you know as you got further in the book while well, some of those other characters came in uh you know which were like your teammates that you sort of it took a little longer to get to know and uh then there was also um because you talk a lot about sort of feeling a bit under pressure uh, to that it all end up producing a good result which which was you know the time that you had in your head and it kind of built up the excitement and now it kind of explains how, why you're feeling so much pressure because if you were doing all these journal entries online, uh, then you were, had all these followers and you had all these people. I mean, other than your wife who was invested in this project because she <laughs> came along. 
<laughs> but you had all these other people that were also kind of invested in your project. So how did that, uh, how did that sort of feel? And why was it that you, you know, in the book, you, you were saying how you don't want to put the number out there, the true number that you wanted to attain, you didn't want to tell anyone, including Ben. Yeah. Yeah, that, that whole pressure thing is interesting um, because like any professional sport, professional running is a high pressure job. You know, it's perform or find something else to do with your life. Um, it, you know, it's a what have you done for me lately type of deal. And I mean, they're under tremendous pressure, tremendous. You know, think about it. It's like, you know, these runners there in, in Flagstaff, you know, they... Think about, you know, say they started running when they were 12, 13, 14, 15. They won everything at that age, everything. And then they climb the ladder, they get to college. Maybe they start losing a little bit there, but they're still mostly winning. And then suddenly, you know, they're out of college and they're competing against the Kenyans <laughs> and, <Yeah>. and dopers <laughs> and <Yeah>. doping Kenyans. <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah. our... And that, that's a lot of pressure. Um, and you only have so much time, right? You know, the professional running is not for folks our age. Um, Liz, I'm accepting you from that. You, you could be. <laughs> I still have a chance. <laughs> but, so, well, I don't know. But I, I, wa I wanted to experience that pressure. And that's part of the reason I did the blog and I shared in real time. Okay. I, wanted, I wanted it to be a high wire act for me. Like if I failed, I wanted to fail publicly. I really did. Not because I wanted to fail publicly, but because I thought, A, I wanted to experience the pressure, but B, I thought that pressure could help me succeed. Because, you know, if you have the strength to handle it, that's what pressure does. So, so why didn't you give your goal out then? Why didn't you give Yeah, your... that's the other side of it. Because I, 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 I as I, I, I literally thought it was impossible. Like, I did not think it was possible. Okay. Like, I did not trust the part of me that wanted it. You know, because I had always wanted it. it to, you know, what, the it is, I, I had always wanted to join the sub 240 marathon club. And it just didn't happen. And I really tried hard, you know. Yeah. From like 20, age 28 to... 46 when I when I arrived in Flagstaff I tried and tried and tried and I was long beyond I got to 241 but that PR that two so close so close yeah. <laughs> but that that PR was nine years old when I got and I hadn't gotten within eight minutes of it so I and I I understand like I'm knowledgeable of the sport and the science behind it and so I didn't believe it was possible there was a voice in my head that wanted it uh, yeah. and wanted to believe it was possible, but I didn't. And that's why I was really uh, reticent to speak it out loud. It seemed in the story that there were actually two voices in your head. There was yourself and there was actually a young lady called Sarah Crouch. Yeah. Who ran with you, who I think believed in you more than you believed in yourself. She did. Yes. She, she wasn't part of the actual Nazali team. So, how, how, where does she fit into the story? Yeah, I mean, you know, Flagstaff is a, you know, it's a running mecca and there's just, it's crawling with elite <laughs> runners and they're not all members of NAZ Elite. And, and Sarah and her husband, Michael, 
they were new arrivals that they had moved they moved to they made a permanent relocation to Flagstaff after I'd been there for a few weeks. Sarah and Michael came over to dinner at Matt Yano's house one night, had dinner with them. And you know, you just you just vibe with certain people you connect and Sarah and I yeah. connected. She actually was a fan of mine. <laughs> oh wow. She, yeah, just a, she was previously on a professional team. She was independent at that time, but she was on the uh, the Zap Endurance team in North Carolina. And I actually had a connection there. I had visited their, their, uh, that, that, that team a couple of times. So anyhow, we just, we just connected. And for some reason, it, you know, it's funny, these dynamics, because certain people took me under their wing and they're almost young enough to be my children. It's yeah. just a weird <laughs> dynamic, <laughs> but it works because they're faster than I am. But yeah, Sarah was one of those people and she, you know, she's just, she's awesome. And, and she's a dreamer and she's got, she's flinty. She's got an edge to her. She speaks her mind. And uh, she just decided that I was going to be a bit of a project for her. <laughs> and yeah, and, but also, you know, she, she, she did, I mean, she genuinely believed in, in what I was doing and, but we ran together. She was a 232, she had a 232 PR at, at the time. And we would run together. And yes, she was adjusting to being at, at 7,000 feet for the first time. But she, her feeling was, this guy's fitter than I am. Like, why, is, why does he only want to run 240 or, or whatever? So she kept pushing me and pushing me to set my sights higher. And also we became, we developed a little bit of like a, a half joking rivalry. Uh, complete with a lot of lame smack talk. So how did you not end up living there after the 13 weeks, you know, after having watched her move there and having experienced all this? Because you do say that at one point, yeah, you guys went to look at ha like houses. I mean, were you serious about moving or were you just taken up by the whole process? It was both. It, like, you know, and, and again, um, you know, if, if I had experienced this whole thing as a much younger person, I would have experienced it very differently. But I was old enough to and self-aware enough to know what was going on, that it, you know, it was it was very special to be there. But one, you know, one thought I had was, well, it's special, but it, it's it's only meant to be this. And then you move on. Another part of me thought, well, why not? You know, if you love it, uh, you, on almost every level, I love Flagstaff more than where I actually live. But, <laughs> but I'm married and my wife, <laughs> we're a 50-50 partnership and you know, she's, not, she's not a runner. And, and, and she has family here in California where, where we live. Uh, so, you know, yeah. it's a partnership and we just, I mean, that's, that's really, I probably would live there, uh, um, you know, if, if this were an autocracy and I could just, you know, what Decide. I say goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I kind of, I can understand because I know like we went to, we went to BC, um, which is on the West coast in Canada and, um, there are a lot of mountains there in Montreal. It's very flat. There's one mountain basically. Um, and you know, my boyfriend will say it's a hill. It's not really a mountain. So when we went 
to to the Rockies, it, it, he like my boyfriend loves the mountains, and he would have moved there. I mean, if I had said yes, like the next day, and I'm kind of like, yeah, but our family and our friends, they're in Montreal, and so I completely get it. It's like if you had a different life, would you move there? Probably, probably, you know, yesterday, but. Um, but yeah, because you have all these other things and uh, that must have been tough though. Yeah, not, not, not so tough, you know, because, you know, you know my, my wife and I, we've been together a, a long time. We're, we're coming up on our 19th wedding anniversary and we, we made a bunch of moves that were all about me and what I wanted. Okay. And, and so, you know, I owe her. <laughs> Ah, I see. Okay. So does she run as well or no. like what, what did she That's do while she was there? Okay. No, she, she, does, she does not, she does not run. Um, okay. Yeah. So, um, and, and uh, you know, the, you know, she has asthma and the, the altitude was kind of hard on her. And it was actually weirdly, weird, you know, our dog Queenie is, you know, a, a bit of a, a background character in the book as well. We, we brought her along and she did not do well uh, there at all. Like it's uh, so, yeah. So it was like two against one, really. That's <laughs> <laughs> fair. You can't have Christmas every day. That's what I'm saying. It spoils but, you know, Christmas. I, can, I, I go back every chance I, I can get. I mean, just because you don't live there doesn't mean you can't go there. That's really been the compromise. I mean, I, I've lost track of the number of times I've been back there uh, in, in the three years since we left. Um, going back again in August, as a matter of fact. Uh, wow. Yeah, so I, I get to scratch, I get my Flagstaff fix. Oh, uh, good. Yes. Do we need to put that on our bucket list, uh, Liz? Yeah, I Go think Flagstaff. so. I think so. Hang around the streets, wait for some runners to come by and jump no, in. No, they, they now- See how long you can keep up. But now that we read the book, we know that they have a Thursday night run at the bagel shop. So we just have to show up. <laughs> morning, Thursday morning. Don't show yeah. up at night. Oh, Thursday, Thursday morning. Oh, I yeah. got that wrong. Everyone else has read the book too. <laughs> <laughs> um, just, just in terms of the training, Matt, um, give, us, give us your thoughts on um, the actual training, pro- the whole experience. What were, the, what were the things that you found unusual or particularly remarkable about training with the pros and being in amongst the pros? Yeah, the, the training, I mean, I just responded very well to, you know, the Ben Rosario marathon training formula. You know, I had run, I don't really count marathons, but I, if you count everything, I guess I'd run about 40 marathons, <laughs> uh, you know, what, what, at that time. Um, Chicago would have been roughly my 41st. And so, you know, I, I wasn't a beginner <laughs> and I, I had some sense of you know, how you do it, but I did things a little differently uh, under Ben's guidance for sure. Um, you know, I, the, the, the big things were, we really did two long runs a week versus the traditional one. And more often than not, the long runs were fast. Like, I mean, they, 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 were, they were not so much long runs as, as we tend to think of them, like slogging for 30K mm-hmm. or whatever, but they were workouts that just happened to add up to 30K <laughs> of running. Uh, okay. 
and you were doing that twice a week, not once. And one of them would be definitely sort of more epic than the other. Uh, so that was one thing. And, and, and Ben also had us, and of course I'm picking his brain because he would tell me what to do. And I would say, why you know, explain, yeah. <laughs> you know, so yeah, I, I got to understand his, his thinking. And so we did a ton of stuff that was like more in the kind of moderate intensity range uh, versus high. He, he, you know, everyone's got their own terminology. He uses a term called steady state, which is about, the fastest pace you can sustain for two hours. So that's sort of the slow end of what he would consider a moderate intensity. And so then for two hours, that's about marathon pace for the pros. Exactly. That's what he thinks like yeah. elite male marathon pace is roughly steady state. But even if you're a four hour marathoner, your two hour max pace is your steady state pace. Okay. Um, okay. And then, so the fast end of moderate would moderate intensity would be what he calls critical velocity, which is your 30 minute max, like a, the fastest pace you can sustain for 30 minutes, which is between Ouch. 5k and 10k race pace for most runners. Uh, so that we spent a ton of time in that range and, and we did faster stuff, but it was more, I think it was like low intensity was the, the meat that moderate intensity stuff was the sauce and the fast stuff was the seasoning <laughs> in his formula. And, and the overall volume was quite high. You know, I couldn't handle the amount of running that the real pros could do, but I did a lot for me. I peaked at, and forgive my Americanness, 91 miles, 91, 92 miles in, in a week, which was a lot for me. So that formula, it, I, I just, I felt great all the time. I really did. You know, I, I'm very injury prone. So I was, I was constantly on the verge of getting injured and I did suffer one major injury halfway through. What, what do we got there? 145 <laughs> kilometers. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a lot that. of kilometers. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, for me, it was about as much as I had ever done when I was a much younger man, but all the easy runs were on trails. And you know that made a difference. It was fun, probably. Yeah, and I just I just felt good, except for the you know being on the verge of falling apart. Like in terms of like my energy, my ability, like I didn't have any bad workouts. I had a few of those easy runs that are just not easy at all. But those are those are mm -hmm. going to happen by and large. I just felt great. You know the the training worked. Yeah. So see, that's see. sorry. I was I was just gonna comment on that one little note that uh, you said at the end was because we kind of noticed that it seemed like you always just wanted to go faster. Yeah, and we were saying then... exactly the same question. <laughs> okay, yeah. So so yeah. So because Ben, it seemed like throughout the book he was always saying like too fast, too fast, too fast. So you were always doing your workouts too fast, and then. So do you think that was because, you know, was it because you were just feeling so good or is it something about, you know, that us not so elite runners tend to do is just run everything either too fast or not at the right pace or. Yeah. You know, the, the, it was obviously, you know, it became a running joke that, you know, Matt doesn't know how to pace. And yeah, I would, I would, I would do pretty much everything too fast. 
well, not everything, you know, because the, the easy runs, well, they were a thing unto, it, unto itself. But, you know, I, I had to run alone in easy runs a lot of the time just to avoid going too fast. But in workouts, yeah, like Ben would give me a time and I would just blow away the time. But the thing is, you know, I'm, I'm super experienced and I'm a coach myself and I, I consider myself good at pacing. You know, when I race, I almost always negative split my, my races, almost always. Like I know how to do it. And then suddenly I come to Flagstaff and can't do it. I can't, can't hit a pace to save, save my life. And I think part of it was I never trained at high altitude before. And you can't go as fast. So you have to make an adjustment. But I, I think I just, I adapted extremely well to, to the altitude. I mean, thanks largely to how, you know, Ben eased me into training at, at high altitude. And, and the other part of it was that Ben had never, or he wasn't used to coaching runners like me. I mean, which is to say as slow as I am. And, and so the, I think the, the targets he gave me were pretty soft. And, and a, you know, a lot of, you know, in my defense, when I ran too fast in some of the, especially early on in some of the workouts, I wasn't defying, you know, it, well, in my coaching, I, I tell athletes all the time, there's the spirit of the workout and there's the letter of the workout, and they're not the same thing. And so I felt I was always running in the spirit of the workout, but I was disobeying the letter of the workout. So I don't think I was ever running too hard. I was just running too fast. <laughs> and, okay. But over time, because you know, Ben is a great coach, so he figured it out. He, he, just, he needed time to learn me as an athlete and you know i needed time to i don't know get my act together in terms of like <laughs> training at seven thousand feet um and you know as readers of the book will know by the end of it we we met in the middle we figured it out <clears throat> yeah uh, in terms of the the training itself um okay we hear we hear great great description there what about the things that were sort of outside of the running uh, there seemed to be a lot going on. Yes, I mean that—that's the thing. I mean, you know, being—excuse <clears throat> me—being a professional runner, it's twenty-four hours a day, really. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, you're still a human being, you know. Uh, you, uh, you know, there were, you know, a few runners on the team were parents, you know, so they had kids to to take care of. Some of them had little side gigs, like they did a little coaching on the side or uh, what have you. So, Kellen you know, was a firefighter. Yes, you know, Kellen Taylor is, you know, was training to be a firefighter. And so running wasn't everything, but still their running was their paycheck. So they, you know, it's uh, things we all do like eat and sleep. Well, whether you're a runner, professional runner or amateur, or even not a runner, you got to eat and sleep. But I mean, their diet, they ate a certain way because they were professional runners, right? You know, they had to, they couldn't just eat whatever um, and, and sleep too, you know, you know, most people don't get quite enough sleep. They can't get away with that. I, almost everyone on the team naps and just as a little tangent, I, I went to Flagstaff with the intention of completely immersing myself in the professional runner lifestyle and 
And that meant going, doing absolutely everything they do. But the last domino to fall was napping. Like I hate, <laughs> I hate napping. It's interesting. I've got a list of questions here. And one of my questions is talk to me about napping. I'm extreme. <laughs> I'm extremely interested in napping. Yeah. I didn't want to do it. I, I did not, but eventually I broke down. I got to the point like very, very near the end of the process where the, the training was so heavy that I just had to, like I, the choice was taken away from, I resisted it to the very end. And then I, I, I basically just napped. Yeah. I just fell asleep in my chair. That, <laughs> that, was my, <laughs> that, that was my nap. But yeah, there's so much um, ancillary stuff they do, you know, not just like the, you know, there's the running obviously, then there's the strength workouts. And then there's like the ancillary, I call them corrective exercise routines. Like each member of the team based on whatever injuries they had in the past, whatever physical therapist had said their imbalances were that they needed to balance out. They would all do some kind of routine separate from strength workouts of stretches, mobilizations, little strengthening things. And, and so, you know, that for me, because I was constantly on the verge of breaking down uh, AJ Gregg at uh, Hypo Two Sport there in Flagstaff, who was affiliated with the team, like he he just kept giving me stuff to do. Like every time I went in, I'm like, well, now this hurts and now that hurts. And it's so like, he would just add to your list of exercises. Yeah. Like yeah, I ended up like timing it at one point, and it was 35 minutes. So like, and there was one thing I had to do five times a day. So that that was <laughs> that was something else so 35 minutes a day i had to be like balancing on one foot with my eyes closed and, and you know stuff like that yeah so it's just so, you, know, you know massage you know massage once a week every week and it's not like swedish massage where like you it feels good <laughs> it's therapeutic massage where it doesn't feel good and yeah I've just had, a, i've had some of that it doesn't feel good um, so actually, like with all that, so because you know about sports nutrition, obviously you've re- you've written books on it, and uh, you had mentioned in the book that during your sort of like stint doing, you know, being a pro athlete, you ended up like losing weight you didn't even think you had to lose. So what like what was different? Did you learn something? knew about nutrition or about your personal nutrition that you didn't know before or you know what i learned was that um no matter how serious you think you are about performance you know as a an independent competitive amateur runner you are slacking off in certain ways you are (laughs) you are cutting corners in certain ways and you either recognize that you're doing that or you don't, but either way you're doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, for me, you know, I am an amateur, but because, you know, I'm not the same as every, like someone who, you know, works at a bank and has three kids. Well, that's not me. I, I write books about running. I coach runners. So I'm really immersed in the sport and my life already revolved around it in much the same way a professional runners does. I'm just on my own uh, normally. So I, I, I felt like I, I knew the stuff and I was doing the stuff, like anything you can do to help your running performance. I, I sort of felt like I was already doing, um, but only when I got into that environment where people were really doing everything. <laughs> 
So, so, you know, I, it, it was serendipitous that I lived with Matt Yano, who just, I mean, he, he has a role model diet for runners. And it's not that it's like monastic where he just never ate a sweet. Matt has a sweet tooth and he would indulge it, you know, every now and again. But he just, he ate super high quality food, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner and snacks in between. Just had high standards and the stuff was delicious. I mean, he, he loves to cook uh, and he made great stuff. And it wasn't really hard to eat that well. You just had to maintain the standard. And with him, you know, living under the, the same roof with him, seeing what he did, I thought, you know what? I could probably eat a little less cheese. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could probably cut down on dark chocolate. So that's all I really did. So there was no great awakening in terms of, man, I've had it all wrong with diet. I didn't learn anything about nutrition per se. I just learned that I was fooling myself about how great a gap there was between what I was actually doing and what, what was both possible and sustainable. So I just made a few small adjustments really to the way I, I ate and they added up to nine pounds of weight loss. <laughs> One, one thing that a, an average athlete doesn't use uh, very much would be a sports psychologist. I was fascinated by your occasional um, sessions with Shannon Thompson. Right. Um, what, what, what role did that have? And is that a compulsory part of being in the pro team? Or is that, uh, you know, as needed? Yeah, the, uh, the, the sports psychology is definitely uh, non-mandatory. So Shannon, <clears throat> Shannon is affiliated with the team. She's also affiliated with Northern Arizona University, you know, the major university in Flagstaff. And so a lot of the members of NAZ Elite do use her services at one time or another. And I've, I've just, you know, I'm a huge believer uh, in the importance of the, the mind uh, as it relates to uh, endurance. So that, that was a resource I was absolutely going to take advantage of and, and did. And uh, Shannon's great. It's funny, like not only were all the, the athletes on the team far younger than I was, also everyone associated with the team in any kind of professional capacity was like Ben Rosario, the coach, nine years younger than me. AJ Gregg, you know, the, the, the physical therapist I went to all the time was 14 years younger, younger than me. Shannon, my sports psychologist, my shrink while I was there, a decade younger than me. So everywhere I went, yeah, I was just being advised and helped and mentored by younger people. And you had, you had what, what seemed to be a pretty serious uh, groin injury in the middle of made for a great story because uh, created a precipice situation with respect to the upcoming marathon, but you, it looked like it was quite a serious groin injury. Um, my reaction was, if that had happened to me, I would have probably been out of the marathon, but um, Matt's got a whole professional team um, around him who seemed to be able to help you get through to be able to race. Is that a fair yeah, point? It was absolutely difference making. Um, yeah, I mentioned earlier that I am injury prone. I'm, I, I've had every 
common overuse injury that runners experience more than once. I mean, you name it, I've had it. And I, I remember uh, I got a chance to sit down with Ben Rosario um, in Sacramento um, a few months before I, I went out there he, he, to Flagstaff. He, he, he came out because a couple of his athletes were competing in the California International Marathon. And we just met at a Starbucks to have a little bit of a powwow plan for my, my fake pro runner experience, as I, I called it. And I remember distinctly during that meeting, impressing on him, you know, in the three months I'm out there with you, I will get injured. Like, I'm not a pessimist. I just, it, you need to know this. Like, I'm brittle. <laughs> and it's going to happen and, and prepare yourself. And sure enough, I mean, I, you know, I had more than one minor injury, but the groin thing was, the thing is like, you know, the injuries that I've, I've had mostly and the injuries most runners experience are overuse. You know, they're slow onset. This one was acute. It was more like, you know, Bam. a high like you, you jump up to rebound a basketball and then land on the top of your foot and you're like oh god <laughs> this was was like that and but i've had enough experience with pain and injury that the moment it happened i thought here we go again like it like this is over it is o-v-e-r <laughs> over <laughs> oh no i was sure of it as sure as I was that I was not capable of running a sub 240 marathon at age 46, I was sure that this whole thing was, was over, but I made, you know, a, a recovery that seemed miraculous at the time. And it wasn't because of me. It was because of the resources and support and expertise that I had available. So that, that was another really powerful lesson because it's not, there, there's no magic to it. You know, this is what it means to be a professional in the sport. And, you know, if you love running and you want to see how good you can be and you're not a professional and you can't recreate that whole infrastructure on your own, but you can try, you know, you can do the best you can. And that's kind of what I wanted to communicate to other runners. It's like, if you take a no stone unturned approach and you try to create, you know, what, you know, you build a team a support team around you, it may, it will make a difference. It's not quite the same as being a real pro, but uh, you know, it saved me uh, in that circumstance. How much better do you think you would have done if you didn't have the injury? Cause it seemed like during the race, you respected it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it definitely came back to haunt me during the race and Chicago was also hot that year. And, you know, Sarah Crouch, you mentioned her earlier, my, my quasi-rival um, who took me under her wing. You know, she told me I was in 235 shape. That might have been a little aggressive. I think um, if I hadn't had the groin act up, if it had been cooler in Chicago, definitely low third low 237s high 236s um and that's part of the reason because i told people they're like what are you going to do next after i got my my happy ending in chicago and i kept saying well i'm just gonna take some time off focus on other things but part of the reason i abandoned that plan <laughs> and went back on my word and immediately as soon as i got home to california <laughs> I started for another marathon was because i felt like dang, I could have gone even faster. <laughs> yeah. 
So uh, then, then now with all your, all your new knowledge, well, it's not new anymore because it was in 2017, but is there some of that, that, you know, that's kind of influenced your coaching or even, you know, your, your training that you do now that you're self-coached again? Oh, big, big time. You know, everything from some of the X's and O's, you know, some of the specific workouts I did, I now prescribe to, well, I, I still do myself and I prescribe to other athletes. Also, you know, that, <clears throat> excuse me, that no stone unturned mentality. That's one thing I thought I can take that. I can't take 7,000 feet of altitude home with me. I can't take Ben Rosario <laughs> and my teammates home with me, but, um, that approach, I can. And one of the things I decided to do when I got back to California is my second Ironman. This came up at the very, coming full circle now. Um, but I, you know, I was still hungry I, and I just needed an outlet for it. And um, I decided, you know what? I had done one Ironman when I was 31. And I decided my next goal is to beat, that, beat the time I did in my first Ironman in a second Ironman at age 48. And one of the things I did in, in preparing for it was get help. So I hired a swim coach. I hooked up with a service that um, they analyze your training data, mostly your like your bike power output and stuff to tell you about your physiology and, and where you have room for improvement. And, and so the hubris that I had when I was 31 thinking, ah, oh, I'm, I'm so good. I can just, you know, I'm so, I'm such an expert. I can just do it without help. That was all gone. Uh, and I did end up beating, destroying my, <laughs> my first Ironman time. Wow. I, and it's not that I was physically better. It's just that I had learned, you know, I was taking advantage of, of experience and, and the lessons, some of which I, I learned as a fake professional Runner. So yeah, there's a ton of stuff that I've just carried forward with me, both as an athlete and, and as a coach. So I kind of like that you mentioned that even as a coach, you decided to hire a coach because I find that a lot of times, like I've, I have friends at work that talk to me about running and they like to run. And then you talk to them about joining a group and they're like, oh no, I'm not going to join a group. Like I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna run on my own. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I guess I guess you're sending the message that um, at all layers, really every layer in whatever level you're at, getting some external advice can push you on a bit. Yes, I mean think about it. You know the the the, the members of any of the elite that I train with, some of them are coaches. They know the sport. They don't need. It, they don't have a coach because they don't know how to train. You know, coaches. That, that's not what they do. You know, they keep you from making stupid decisions. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> they save you from yourself. <laughs> well, um, it's good. It's not easy to be objective with yourself, for sure. So yeah. at the Chicago Marathon, that you, the, you were the, 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 um, the grand finale to some extent of, of the whole book uh, occurs at, it seems that there were 48 elites in the whole run. And one of those elites, uh, selected elites, was Matt Fitzgerald. So, how the hell did you do that? First of all, and uh, and and how much fun was it? Yeah, I mean, so you know, this whole thing. It, obviously, I envisioned this experience as a dream. I mean, 
that was the point. I, I created a personal fantasy. Not It wouldn't be everyone's fantasy, but it, it was a personal fantasy. And then I just went out and did it. And, you know, the realization of that fantasy was even better than <laughs> the fantasy itself. Because when I went out there, I just... I told Ben Rosario, I would like to, I would like this whole thing to culminate. Obviously it has to culminate in a, in a big race, right? Uh, we've, we've all seen a bunch of sports movies and you know, the last scene is the championship game or, or whatever. So I needed, I needed this thing to, to end with my championship game. And I told Ben, you know, I would like to do a marathon that at least one member of the team is also doing. And he suggested that I do the Chicago Marathon. And I thought, okay, great, I'll sign up. I went to sign up, it was sold out. <laughs> oh no. Yeah, because I mean, just, you know, that's what happens. And I thought, well, I've got connections now, so maybe I can, <laughs> I can pull some strings. Um, so there's an agent for the team who's also a little bit of a, uh, an ancillary, ancillary character in the book, Josh Cox. Yeah. He's actually quite well known. He does broadcasting. He was a professional runner himself. He was on The Bachelorette way back in the early 2000s. Yeah, um, I never saw that because I yeah. don't have cable. So, <laughs> anyhow, that, that's neither here. He doesn't put it on his resume as, as he assured Okay. Me. <laughs> it's neither here nor there. But, um, but we put it, you know, I just went out there and with the thought that um, we'll figure it out. Um, but I was not, I was not entered in the Chicago marathon when I arrived in Flagstaff 13 weeks before the race and, and Josh went to work, you know, he had, obviously he negotiates with all the major race directors and he had a re relationship with Kerry Pinkowski, uh, the, the director of the Chicago marathon. And so he, he talked Kerry into letting me into the race, but the way he's wired, he, he's always, you know, like most sports agents, he tries to get as much as he possibly can for his clients. And even though I wasn't paying him a dime, <laughs> he, thought, he thought, why stop there? Like, maybe I could talk Kerry into allowing Matt to participate as an elite. And he succeeded, long story short. It took a long time. It was pretty late in the game when he gave me the good word that I would be given. Now, just so people understand, as a male, uh, the, the, the standard for earning an elite bib at the Chicago Marathon is having previously run a 213 marathon or better, or, nice. the, or the equivalent at another di distance. Like I, I was absolutely nowhere near that. Talk about underqualified. But you know, the argument that Josh made to Kerry was, um, you know, this will be good for you and for the sport for, for an every man to go through the whole experience and then share it with the broader running community. And, and to Kerry's credit, he, he, he bought it and yeah, just, oh. no, no pressure, no pressure. You're just going to have a fantastic experience. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, for from the book, I mean, we kind of talked about it. I I know like what we got out of it. Uh, basically, the messaging that we uh, that we got out of the book is, you know, if you're if you give yourself the chance, then you 
are probably capable of way more than you think you are. Um, so I don't know, was that what you were hoping that people would get out of your book or was there, was there anything else that you were kind of hoping that people would, uh, would come away with? You know, that message in particular was kind of a bonus. Um, you know, what I went in there trying to prove or what I went into the experience trying to prove was a, that your, your, your talent level, your gift should not set the limit for how far you pursue the sport of running your passion should and so many people think like oh i don't deserve to get massage therapy every week because i'm slow or why bother you know stepping up my training because i'm not that good and i hate that I really do because like, even though I'm, I'm a, a way better than average runner, still my passion is, is far exceeds my talent. And I've always just let my pa passion decide, like I'll go ahead and train like a pro, even though I'm much slower than they are. And I, 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 I just feel that everyone should give themselves the, the same license. So that's one thing I wanted to prove. It's like, it's okay, you know, run, run, <laughs> run the dream. You know, whether you're a 2.30 marathoner or a five-hour marathoner, it's okay. If you want to do it, do it. Uh, you don't need anyone's permission but your own. Another thing I wanted to prove was that the pros know what they're doing. You know, if, if you read my sort of how-to books you know, about diet, psychology, training, the, the, mess, the, the common thread in all of them is train like the pros, eat like the pros, think like the pros. We're all human yeah, you're not as fast <laughs> and maybe you're not as experienced, but if you scale their, you know, they, what, what they do, they do best practices. And if you scale them down to your level, uh, they will work for, for you as well. And I, I wanted to come away with some proof of concept where, yeah, I'm faster than most amateur runners, but I'm still, and you'll see it in the book, I'm getting my ass handed to me by... <laughs> Know, the male and female members of this team alike. I am not elite. I am not the genetic lottery winner that they are. And even still, I benefited hugely from doing things the way they do. Those were the two things I went in there wanting to demonstrate. The bonus was what you, what you mentioned is that stuff you don't think is possible for you probably is. <laughs> like if, if there's a little seed inside you that just wants it and there's this whole rational shell around that kernel saying oh no it's not are you kidding me don't listen to that part listen to the <laughs> telling you that maybe you can uh, just and 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 so what if you fall short you know you know just uh, you never know so if it matters enough to you to just go for it go for it so do you think Matt's offered you enough to get you over the line for a three-hour marathon, Liz? I think so. Yeah, I think I just have to go for it. <laughs> I think so. I, I need to shave off five minutes, so, so I guess it's not too bad, but it could be a lot of, a lot of minutes. <laughs> Depends how you look at it. <laughs> so much of it is the mind, you know. Um, probably... Just to be respectful to you, Matt, we should try to, 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 to wind this up a little bit. Otherwise, you won't come on to talk to us when your next project comes out. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe that's a good segue. Um, 
tell us about your next project. For sure you'll have one. Um, when we start the Mad Fitzgerald running book review podcast, um, <laughs> what will be the next, the next project? Yes, thankfully I haven't run out of ideas yet. And um, I've got another book coming out at the end of this year, actually. It's called The Comeback Quotient. It's kind of a, kind of a sequel to How Bad You Want It, same publisher as a matter of fact. And it, it's, it's another deep dive into um, endurance psychology. And what I'm trying to do there is I'm exploring the question, is there a common thread in among athletes who are able to make the very best of the very worst situations. Like we all love a great comeback story and all as athletes, we all have to make our own comebacks at one time or another in one way or another. And the people who are just masters of the comeback, you know, is there something that they're all doing? And of course the answer is yes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And and the book uh, explores that. Well, being uh, over 60 now and trying to uh, run, uh, run 28 PRs, uh, I'll probably need to read that book. So uh, as soon as it comes out, we'll be, we'll be straight on that. Sounds pretty attractive to us, certainly to me at my age. Well, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm always up for reading more running books. And uh, yeah, I know that the, the sports psychology is, um, is yeah, I think it's underutilized in the, uh, in the not pro, you know, group of runners. I think we don't really uh, realize how important it is. We're winging it for the most part. You know. Yeah, I remember my first introduction to sports psychology was in university. We had a master's student working with our cross-country team for like uh, one one season. And uh, we would just sort of like half do what she was telling us to do. And uh, you kind of didn't really see the point. But now, you know, looking back, I mean, all those techniques are, are, are they're used by, you know, Kara Goucher. Right. So it's pretty funny. That's uh, well, <laughs> she was teaching me something. I just wasn't as open-minded as I am now. And really, we should take the opportunity to thank uh, Pegasus Books for um, giving us access to your to your book and also um, hooking us up for this for this conversation, uh, Matt. Uh, it's greatly appreciated. So you can find we can find Matt at uh, mattfitzgerald.org as we said earlier in, in the, in, at the start, and Liz told you all about it. There we have it. Uh, Matt lived uh, the dream of being a pro marathon runner for a few months. Uh, and the way he's told us, told us the story, certainly Liz and I, we lived vicariously through, through his time there. Um, and if you'd like to know more about it, and of course you would, go out and get yourself a copy of uh, Running the Dream by Matt Fitzgerald. Is there somewhere specific that you'd, you'd, you'd like to direct people to get their copy, Matt? Um, well, you know, I'm, I'm encouraging people these days to support their local bookseller if you got one. Uh, a lot of them are really struggling these days. And, you know, even if it's not the single most economical way you could buy it, and I don't say this for my benefit, but, you know, if you're an ebook person that you know, uh, I am largely, that, that's fine too. But uh, yeah. Wherever you, you normally buy books, you can probably get this one. And, and we'll probably put an affiliate link, Liz. You're, you're good at these things. We'll yeah. Put in our notes. For, for the, uh, the Canadians, 
or amazon.ca because unfortunately our local bookstore doesn't really keep up to date in their running books. Um, <laughs> not the new ones, at least. You'll find like the older ones, but uh, not always the, the, the ones that just came out a month ago. <laughs> So um, we'll, we'll wind it up there. Uh, thanks for your time, Matt. It's been a great pleasure uh, speaking with you. Um, Liz, do you want to give our, um, our contact details? Uh, yep. So we're on uh, social media. So you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We have a Facebook page, Running Book Reviews. Uh, our Instagram is the same, Running Book Reviews. And Twitter, I think it's Running Reviews. So that's where you can find us if you want to leave us a comment or a review or a suggestion. We're open to all of those. One suggestion Matt's leaving us for to do his next book uh, when it comes out later this year. Thank you very much for your time, Matt, and this is Running Book Reviews. Until next time. Bye.